Hey there, Hang Up listeners. You're about to hear a preview of this week's episode. The coronavirus pandemic has made it a challenge for us to do this show in a financially sustainable way. Because of that, we're temporarily changing how we do the podcast. Every other week, the full Hang Up and Listen will be for Slate Plus members only, with just the first segment available to non-members. If you want to hear every word of every show that we do, then you need to subscribe to Slate Plus. It's only $35 for the first year, and your membership will help assure that we can continue doing Hang Up and Listen for a very long time. If you want to subscribe, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. Thank you so much. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 11th, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to do our regular check-in with the Bulls documentary The Last Dance, which covered Michael Jordan's foray into baseball and Jordan's legendary jerkitude. We'll also talk to Dan Straley about the life of an American baseball player in South Korea, where sports are actually going on right now. And writer Morgan Campbell will be here to help us assess the return of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, where Joe Rogan insisted on shaking everyone's hand. I'm in Washington, D.C., so is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. And also with us, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, TCU hoodie wearer, Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel. Welcome to the family, Zach Evans. <laughs> Zach Evans being a top running back recruit following in, is it the Joel Anderson running back room in Fort Worth? Is there a plaque? I haven't donated quite enough money for that yet, <laughs> but if people subscribe to this podcast, um, maybe there might be a chance someday that we could make that happen. Ladanian Tomlin sends donations slightly, at, at years, <laughs> but only only for now. About midway through episode eight of The Last Dance, Tim Grover, Michael Jordan's personal trainer, offers up an anecdote. The 1995 season has just ended. That's the one in which Jordan quit baseball, announced I'm back, and returned to the Bulls 65 games into the regular season. Chicago has just lost to Orlando and a young Shaq and Penny in the conference semifinals. After every season, Tim Grover tells us, Jordan would take a break and call him when he was ready to start training again, but not this time. The night they lost Orlando, I said, Michael, you know, I'm about to get out of here. Let me know when you want me to see you. He goes, I'll see you tomorrow. Michael had an obligation to himself, the fans, his teammates, the organization, his family, everybody, is that if you're going to sit down and take three hours out of your day to watch me on TV, I have an obligation to give you my best. To give you my best all the time. This is the kind of quote that would get axed by a good editor 100 times out of 100. It's from a totally biased source, an employee kissing his boss's ass, and the insight it allegedly offers doesn't withstand the barest scrutiny. Jordan had played very little basketball that year, so it made sense that he would want to start training sooner than normal. And he certainly wasn't doing that for the organization or the fans. He was doing it because he was embarrassed on the court. To any 
anyone with even a barely functioning bullshit meter, that quote would send the arrow screaming into the red zone. Sunday's installments of The Last Dance made routine work of Jordan's baseball hiatus and focused on his return to the Bulls, those 95 playoffs, and the start of the playoffs in the climactic 1998 season. There was once again some cool behind-the-scenes footage and great stories and sound bites from players not named Michael Jordan and plenty of, oh shit, I totally forgot about LeBradford Smith moments. But I rolled my eyes more in these two episodes than in the first six combined. They confirmed what, for me, is becoming a theme of the last dance. Michael Jordan is only interesting when he's playing basketball. And in this series, he's not always playing basketball. Josh, the truth is I'm starting to really dislike Michael Jordan. And I am also getting really bored of Michael Jordan. And I also feel genuinely sad for Michael Jordan. And I don't think that was the filmmaker's goal to make me feel this way. But 80% of the way through this series, that's where I am. What about you? Your commitment to hating is just a real sight to behold. I, I marvel at it more and more every week. Um, the fact that Jordan isn't likable in this series or off the court doesn't mean that he's not interesting. I think even if you think that this is too hagiographical, if you think that the documentary isn't well-made, I would not say that the Michael Jordan that we see here is not interesting or that his self-presentation isn't interesting. I actually find it fascinating the way that he talks about himself, the way that others talk about him, the way that he's presented. I will say that I admire your choice of clip there because my uh, viewing partner uh, when we were watching last night, she said, are you guys going to talk about all the weird places that people cry in this documentary? <laughs> like, Tim Grover is crying because Michael Jordan wanted to exercise more, Joel. Yeah, I, I know. And, I, I like, at the end, I couldn't help but think at the end of episode seven that they were recording a Nike commercial or something because – it didn't make any sense for Michael Jordan to cry in that moment where he says the, the art, the debate in that moment was whether or not Michael Jordan was a nice guy. And clearly he doesn't give a shit if he's a nice guy. Like it, I, he thinks that his path to greatness is the only one there is. And he is misty eyed because some people disagree with that. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Also, I like I I can't get over the fact that Michael Jordan tried to tell us a whole bunch of people that he doesn't know anything about that we never want shit in our lives because we refuse to scream at our uh you know colleagues and coworkers. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, there was no kind of reflection from him or anyone else on the possibility that you can win in basketball or any other realm without being an asshole. It was basically, we were presented with a binary choice, Stefan. You know, if you wanted Michael Jordan to not call Scott Burrell a hoe, then they wouldn't have won that championship. It's like, it's very, it's very simple. The fact that he was repeatedly calling Scott Burrell a hoe also made me wonder, is he using a lot of more offensive slurs and language in parts of that fabled 1998 footage that we have not seen? Or did he just call everyone hoes? That is an unanswered question. Didn't he call him a bitch too at some point? He might have also called him a bitch. Certainly possible. Yeah. But anyway, Stefan, there is no questioning from anybody about can you win and be nice or at least not be this much of a jerk? No. And, you know, we'll get into some of the anecdotes that are related here that purportedly support the idea that Jordan was so driven by his competitive fire that to win that anything went. Um, but 
the problem I'm having maybe is really one of filmmaking. I mean, we get it already. The problem isn't that Jordan is an asshole. We knew that Jordan was an asshole. The problem isn't that that Jordan has banal thoughts. We knew that Jordan has banal thoughts and has no sort of larger core interest in the world around him. The problem is that every fucking last example and every last banal thought have made it into this documentary. And after eight episodes, while it is interesting and it is entertaining and in the absence of anything but Dan Straley, who we're going to talk to pitching in the Korean Baseball League, it is something that people are galvanized to watch. But to me, it's getting tedious. Yeah. And I think one of the frustrating things, because we watch, you know, these we watch these uh, episodes, you know, along with everybody else on social media at the same time. So you can sort of see, you know, people respond in real time. And one of the frustrating things about Michael Jordan in these last two episodes is that we know that he's an asshole and he doesn't seem like a particularly happy or fulfilled person right. or well-rounded person. But people still fall for this shit. Like they think that this is the only way that you can be successful in your chosen path. And I, and that's kind of, I think, one of the problems here, like a larger societal problem. It's not just that Michael Jordan thinks that you have to be an asshole to win. B.J. Armstrong says, you know, was he a nice guy? He couldn't have been nice. Like, okay, fine. Like, that's basketball. But there are so many other middle managers and people in, you know, in jobs that think that you have to be mean and have to belittle your coworkers or your surrogates or your subordinates that... That, that that's the only way to be an effective manager. And I just, I saw people, you know, buying into that shit last night. And I was like, oh man, really? Seriously? Like you guys took from this, that this is the way to do it. I loved the kind of roll call of increasingly um, ridiculous slights that Jordan claimed inspired <laughs> him to greatness in the playoffs. There was BJ Armstrong pumped his fist one time. And so then I obviously then we had to then we had to beat the Hornets. Um, I wasn't gonna let that stand. Then there was George Carl didn't say hi to me at dinner. Yeah, and so then yeah. I was motivated to beat the uh the Sonics in the 96 finals. It seems like he believes this stuff. It would have been, I think, better <laughs> if the filmmakers pointed out how ridiculous this stuff was. But is Clyde Drexler? I'm like increasingly surprised in retrospect that he actually said that Clyde Drexler was a threat before going on to, um, you know, destroy him in game one of that final series. Because other than that, he just like talks in such kind of, uh, you know, belittling terms about everyone from BJ Armstrong to Gary Payton. I mean, he's so disparaging of Gary Payton and we have data. Like he said, I, the glove, the glove. I didn't have any problems with the glove. Michael, <laughs> you shot 37% in the three games that Gary Payton guarded you in the final, you know, in the final three games of the 1996 finals. Like Gary Payton did give you some trouble, but, and, and it would have been nice to for Gary Payton in that moment to have had the last word or for somebody to correct the record there, but they let Michael Jordan just say, I had no problem with the defensive player of the year. Fine. Jordan and just, just laughing at an iPad, just laughing <laughs> yeah. at Gary Payton on the and iPad. It's not, it's not just that he's <laughs> laughing and mocking Gary Payton and saying, I had no problem with the glove. It's what he said after that. I had a lot of other things on my oh. mind. And then we cut to... Was the it, insinuation that he lost those games on purpose so he could win the championship on Father's Day? I didn't take that, <laughs> but the insinuation to me was that he was so thinking about playing on Father's Day 
a week later that he just, you know, the most competitive fucking athlete on the planet, as we've heard ad infinitum in this documentary, just couldn't focus because he was thinking about his late father and having to play on Father's Day, and that was the motivation. Really? Come on, man. I mean, to me, this is like the portrayal, and this goes back to what we talked about last week, about how the in- the inclusion of the gambling allegations and, and Jordan's gambling history is in there so that Jordan can have the last word. And clearly, as we've also discussed, and everyone has discussed, this is a Michael Jordan production in some way. He had the ability to not talk about certain things. There are clearly things in there that are not discussed, including his family. And yet all of this is in there. And all you can take away is that look, this is like the most uncharitable, miserable, grievance-filled unfriendly dude. And 20 years later, 25 years later, it feels empty to me. It feels like he didn't enjoy any of it except in the moment. And he certainly doesn't enjoy it now. So what are we left with? A bunch of people who either suck up to Michael Jordan or roll their eyes about Michael Jordan. But ultimately, it doesn't feel like Michael Jordan has, you know, actual friends who liked being around him and sharing those moments beyond what happened on the court. Are you trying to say, Stefan, that the real championships are the friends we made along the way? <laughs> I am. And clearly, I, I take that back because his best friend in the Chiron was his driver. His paid employee. Yes. Um, yeah. Joel, an interesting kind of contrast in these episodes was the way in which the film, but also the Bulls players talked about Scottie Pippen refusing to go into the game in 1994, the year that Jordan wasn't on the team. Pippen was mad that Phil Jackson drew up a play for Tony Kukoc, a play that worked, incidentally, and was insubordinate and just sat on the bench, refused to go in. After, you know, we hear that after the game, Bill Cartwright um, said in tears in the locker room that um, Scottie had let everyone down. Scotty is like strangely defiant um, here and saying, you know, I screwed up, but I would do it the same way again, which is which was weird. But the way that all of that is portrayed as if, you know, and and obviously it's not a great thing to do for your team or or for yourself. But the way that it's portrayed is this kind of unforgivable sin in sports and everything that Jordan does is forgivable because of winning like that that was telling to me joel i think that's what jordan thought and you can see that carried out in the way that they presented that right um and it, it it's funny because it happens in the midst of a montage where we see that it's not necessary to be an asshole to be great you know where michael jordan has stepped away to play baseball the bulls are still very good. In Michael Jordan's absence, they win 55 games and finish in third place in the Eastern Conference and advance to the Eastern Conference semifinals. Scottie Pippen showed and modeled another way of leadership and even says, he was like, hey, I think the guys were happy because nobody was yelling at them the whole time. But Scottie makes this one mistake in his career, which is, I mean, I guess we can quibble about whether or not it's understandable or not. But given the history he had with Tony Kukoc and management and feeling like he was being, um, you know, sort of overlooked in a moment that normally would have gone to Michael, it sort of makes sense. Right. But it felt like that was a way for Michael Jordan to be like, hey, Scotty is not who you think he was. I was the real leader on this team. I'm the guy that got them over the hump. This is how you have to be a champion. I would have never quit on you in quite that way, even though Michael Jordan did quit 
on his team, uh, but by retiring, you know? No, and that's, that's exactly how this was framed. I mean, look, it's not defensible what Scottie Pippen did. He made a mistake. It's a huge mistake. It was more than a huge mistake. It is not something you would expect of the leader of any professional sports team. He threw a fucking hissy fit and stopped playing in the critical moment of a playoff game against like the heated rival of the time. More um, than a huge mistake. I love it, Stefan. Keep it, keep upping the ante. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a mistake. It, it was, was the biggest mistake, mistake anyone's ever made. Athletically, honestly. it was a terrible thing that he did. But was it not forgivable? I mean, Jordan's reaction that is used in the documentary is, I don't know if Pippen ever lives this down. I mean, right. thanks for the support, man. Like, right. I'm coming back to be your teammate. Great. But everything, as you said, that Jordan ever did that was wrong, we are we are forced to come to terms with and forgive. How sensitive is Michael Jordan, by the way? I mean, I, did that ever occur to you guys? Like, first, I mean, one of the scariest things in the documentary is Michael Jordan saying, I took that personally. And additionally, <laughs> I mean, basically what he was admitting which is sort of remarkable if you think about it for a guy who's, you know, seen as this indomitable force. The media was really d- difficult with me. I was dealing with the, you know, the pressure and struggle of being a celebrity. So I had to take some time off. And that's that's he's thinking about that before his father was murdered, by the way. So I don't want to, like, diminish the impact that had on his life. But that is something that was a occurring to him before then. So I don't want to give him the chance to say, hey, look, that's, you know, what sealed my decision. That's not that's not it at all. So. You referenced Jordan's father's murder, which gets covered in this set of episodes. And, you know, it takes up a substantial amount of time in the film. But, you know, Jordan, it it obviously had an enormous effect on, on his life in all sorts of different ways. But we see him kind of controlled as he's talking about it. The first championship they went after James Jordan's murder in 1996, after the baseball hiatus and then the, um, him coming back to the Bulls, you see Jordan um, after the game in just heaving total uncontrolled sobs in a way that, you know, we've never seen him before or since. And I don't know, it felt like the treatment of it was a little bit surfacey, both from him and the filmmakers. And, you know, Stefan talking about how Jordan isn't interesting when he's not playing basketball. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say like, oh, the murder of his father is interesting, but it's like a very dramatic thing to have happened to him and um, to his family. And I was interested to hear how he spoke about it and and how it was described. And it, yeah, it felt a little thin to me. And not to be cruel, but there's a lot of talk in this film by Jordan and others about what an amazing father James Jordan was to him and what a huge influence James Jordan was to him. But I would be curious to know how that affected Michael Jordan's adult life. You know, not just that he lost his father and his friend, but he has children. Um, Did that, you know, did, did the way his father raised him affect how he felt about being a father? Did the way that the, did the kind of relationship he had with his father adult as an adult affect how the kind of relationship he wanted he wants to have with his kids when they get older and none of that goes addressed here and it just feels like 
a big hole in the documentary for people who know more of the the Jordan's family backstory. And that's not to say that he's obligated to talk about his relationship with his ex-wife or with his children, but in the context of the importance of his relationship with his father, it certainly seems relevant. Yeah. And I mean, we just end up with him retiring and playing baseball. We get no sense of the man he was or how this affected him in between. Like we just get hints of it. Right. And that's where Juanita Jordan or his children or Larry or even more of his mom would have been useful um, to talk about the impact that had on him because you they talk about how, you know, Michael Jordan's father is murdered and Michael Jordan immediately says, well, I'm an optimistic person or I'm a positive person. So I started looking for the positive, which is a really trite way to discuss something that tragic. Right. And I'm not saying that it's not true, but you would have thought that there'd be a little bit more. I mean, you, we see him later. He like is, is as you say, Josh, heaving on the ground after the, the NBA final. So I just would have liked to have just heard a little bit more about that. And there was one other point in the documentary where they say that Michael Jordan's father talked to him in ninth grade after he'd been suspended three times that year in ninth grade. What the hell did he get suspended for? What were the conversations about? Like they just, you know, breeze, right? You just don't get suspended for no reason in ninth grade or like there's something else going on and they never delved into it. I think that was just sort of, you know, one of the problems that we've had with the documentary throughout that you don't get to see or investigate much more about Michael Jordan's interior life. Um, it, you just, I, I still feel kind of cold towards him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they do get into the the baseball interregnum, although like no, none of his teammates are interviewed, which I thought was kind of interesting. Terry Francona, the manager, um, is a talking head. But they get into the Sports Illustrated cover story by Steve Wolf that had the cover line, bag at Michael, and he's never talked to to Sports Illustrated since then, um, which is an example of Jordan's legendary um, kind of need to control the narrative around himself and um, control um, the way that access gets stole out. And so it's kind of hard to avoid thinking when you hear people in the, the doc saying he could have made the majors after hitting 202. It's like, well, would he have agreed to a documentary that belittled his baseball career, given what we know about, um, you know, his history with SI, would he have consented to have somebody on camera being like, yeah, this guy kind of sucked. And, you know, we didn't like having him around. I mean, maybe nobody would have said that, but it just, the, the nature of this project kind of makes you wonder. And with the baseball thing, I don't, I don't think actually mocking him for it is appropriate. I don't mean to suggest that. It is impressive for like a dude who's never who hasn't played baseball in 15 years to hit above 200 and double A. Like, is it like the most amazing thing that's ever happened in the history of sports? Not really, but um, I don't think it's worth mocking him over. But it's just you don't know when you're watching this whether you're getting unexpurgated, like real opinions from you know the the full gamut uh, of folks, or if you're just getting a picture of, of, you know, what Michael Jordan would want, want you to know and want you to hear. Yeah, I had, I had three thoughts there. One is that, you know, we heard from Frank Kona talking about how amazing it is that he batted 202. And you're right. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. But again, it didn't mean 
that he was going to become a major league player. Two is he would have become a major league player though, because you know that the bull that the White Sox would have called his ass up in September just to fill the stadium, and because they should have called Michael Jordan up in September had there not been a strike in 1995. Uh, Jerry Reinsdorf says that with 1,500 at-bats, he would have made the majors. I mean, come on. We have no idea whether that's true. It takes it takes minor league baseball players thousands of at-bats in some cases to, to, to come close to, to sniffing the big leagues. And the last part that really is annoying is that the implication or the, the, the notion that we're left with about Jordan's playing career is that he ended his baseball career because of the strike, because he was unwilling to cross the picket line and become a replacement player. And there's no evidence given to support that. I mean, I think it's highly unlikely that that the best basketball player in the world who benefited from a strong union or a strong-ish union um, would have crossed the picket line in another sport. But you know, let's not kid ourselves. It's not like Michael Jordan was some sort of social activist or labor rights fighter. He's no Kurt Flood here. All right. Final thoughts here. Number one, Stefan, you got to be nice next week. It's the last week. Okay. Just yeah. say, you know, just just keep it to yourself. Okay. Um, you, you know, you guys are, are kind of ruining the show for me because uh, <laughs> I feel like it's like Homeland, which is a show that I know is bad, but I enjoy watching. Why can't you just let me enjoy my bad show? <laughs> no, I, I, I actually, I think it's fine. I think I'm glad that it's on. I just... <laughs> I'm glad that it's on. I just kind of, I mean, I'm already not a Michael Jordan fan and he's not doing a lot to, to make, and maybe that's, maybe that was the plan all along. Maybe this is, he enjoys this. He wants us to, we didn't win anything and he's pointing it out and I'm just having to live with the, you know, the reality of the fact that I'll never be Michael Jordan or a winner like him. And, you know, again, to go back to the, and I think we want, I want to end with some nice things, but before I get to the nice things, let's not forget that this is the image that Michael Jordan wants us to take away that these are choices he's making. This is a controlled autobiographical documentary for the large part. Yeah, the, the filmmakers have some journalistic latitude, but as we've discussed, Jordan has control here. And like that, this is what he wants us to take away about him is just weird to me. Like, I'm a miserable fuck and I'm proud of it. You know, our friend Gene Demby tweeted last night, there's no winning with this dude, a lacrimose, petty king. And when you compare him to the sort of joy and love for the sport that we've gotten from other NBA stars more recently, that's a really big contrast. But the things I want to leave with, my two favorite parts of these shows, well, one is like, you look back to those fucking scores in the 90s, holy <laughs> shit, oh. 76, 71, man, that basketball sucked. Oh. Wait, that was your positive thing you wanted to end with? Yeah. <laughs> 90s basketball. No, but the other positive thing, which is also not really a positive thing, because I guess I'm full of shit, too. I, the footage of the games that Jordan played, uh, the scrimmages in Los Angeles in the summer of 1995, when he was so determined to get back to the NBA that he spent seven hours a day filming Space Jam all summer, and they built him a court at the studio lot, and Jordan persuaded all these NBA stars to fly out and scrimmage with him. I thought was kind of astounding. The footage is great, but what the fuck was Patrick Ewing thinking? I'm going to go play with Michael Jordan and help him get better so he can come back and kick my ass? That seemed just so weird to me, but it also clearly reflected the influence that Jordan had over his peers. 
All right, <laughs> let's end it there. We're going to have more time to, to discuss The Last Dance in our extra segment. So you can uh, save some hate for, for later, Stefan. Maybe I'll save love for later. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hang up in our bonus segment this week. Mike Pasca joins us for his take slash takes on The Last Dance. The biggest flaw of the documentary, I would say, is that because it's through the prism of Michael Jordan and because he's not around to say anything, the treatment of Jerry Krause is, I will just say, flat out cruel. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash plus. For Joel Anderson and Stephanie Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Members Elmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>